all. Welcome back to Dame It All to Hell. I'm Kelly Gibson. Here we are in another week. And this is the first time I'm in the studio with just Richard, the producer. Tracy is out in the world with her kids, which she'll explain to you. But um, we are excited for another great episode. We have an awesome guest, the author, one of the authors of The Nanny Diaries, um, who also wrote a book based on Monica and Bill's affair. So that is going to be a super interesting conversation. And I'm Tracy Dietz, and I am in Virginia Beach at the World Finals for StarQuest, which is a dance competition, also known as the seventh ring of hell for me. Seriously, <laughs> the StarQuest I don't, I don't thing know is I, pretty funny. I don't know how I'm actually <laughs> going to get through this. Um, but I, actually, I, I do know how I'm going to get through it. It's because of uh, the super amazing dance moms that I get to hang out with. They are super awesome and so supportive, and I have to give a sh- huge shout out to them, especially the uh, DMWD, which we've officially referred to ourselves as the Dance Moms Who Drink. Because you have to to get through the six days of hell. Anyway, um, thank you to all the dance moms. uh, And thank you so much for supporting women. Um, And speaking of supporting women, I guess we're going to go right into a little bit about Miss America. So we talked a little bit last week about the Civil War, as they were talking about, that was brewing in Miss America over the fact that the new board and Gretchen Carlson, the new executive director had yanked swimsuit and evening gown out of the competition and was no longer going to do that. And there were a number of state directors that lost their mind and was like, no, that's not going to happen. We can't do that. And there was a petition that got signed. But now they're all coming out and saying the reason that they were really upset with what was being done was not because they were upset that they were taking out swimsuit and evening gown. It was because of the um, sort of the privacy around or, or the uh, the fact that they weren't being honest about everything that was happening behind the scenes at the Big Miss America. And, and so when it was folding down to the state level, they had basically no input on anything. So that's sort of the whole where we are on that, on what's going on with Miss America. And I have no idea if there's going to be swimsuit in September in Atlantic City or not. No idea. Did they say that if they'd had the chance to have input in the decision, they their input may have been to take those pieces away from the competition? They're not, they're not really saying that. They're just mad that there are not being, they feel like that there are decisions being made that without anybody's knowledge, like everything is sort of being done behind closed doors and then there's just no openness. And so I feel like the state directors are, state directors are bothered by that. Do they have like a annual state director's meeting? Today, director. I feel like I should probably know that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. No. I, I have no idea. Maybe. Yeah. I just I mean, wonder. I think it's Miss America. The, because the first takeaway from the conflict was so much based on this cultural change of the competition, or seemingly cultural change of the competition, in that they took away the what appeared to be appearance-only segments of the thing, and now they're saying, "Wait, wait, wait! It's not that. It's just that." We didn't have input in the decision-making without quali- without, without sort of stating which bit that they were frustrated about. Right. But to, to say that the they only pulled out the appearance sections or is slightly overstated because it's not like your appearance is not present in an interview. For sure. Or in your talent competition. It's just not the I only mean, quality. Well, that's why I said seemingly. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, evening is- gown, they, they answer an on-stage question in an evening gown. Mm-hmm. I mean – you could say that that was very similar to interview. They just were in a gown. Yeah. They were just dressed up instead of being in an interview suit. The plot thickens. Um, yeah, I know. So who knows where we'll go from here. But so Miss America still on its heels. Who knows? I think just as you mentioned, and br- to briefly talk about how the 
political campaign world is like the Miss America world, which it's it's not really. But that there was um, there's all this chatter this week about women's uh, mostly on the Democratic side, um, female candidates who are who are so far seemingly successful have not abided by the Hillary Clinton pantsuit sort of rule of thumb. And I don't know, it, I think we talked about it on the, the podcast, one of the previous podcasts, but there's a candidate for Congress in Texas named MJ Hager, who's a former Iraq war fighter pilot who put out this insane video, a digital video that got like, it went viral and she's raised $750,000 off the video and she she has giant tattoos up like the upper half of her arms and she has she makes no effort to sort of reduce her own personal stamp on her identity and there is some talk about what will happen when we get closer to a general and if you need to pick up the votes of independents and moderates and do you have to eventually abide by some sort of long standing rules about how women should look and sound but for the time being she's almost matched the fundraising of her republic opponent who's been an incumbent for quite a long time so it'll be interesting to see if everyone's looking for somebody that breaks the fucking mold I mean, I think that authenticity is like the way to go these days. I mean, clearly, it's not like Trump followed any rules. It's so, true. And still doesn't. I mean, if you're looking. Still, right. It still, still doesn't. It still is not following any rules <laughs> or doing anything appropriately. Yeah, or... we're officially not going to talk about his meeting with President Putin on this podcast, I mean, but it just we, continues we, the not rules thing. Yeah. We, we could talk about it, but. <laughs> You and I, it's going to be boring because you and I are actually going to agree on something well, for the and, first yeah. time ever. And Republican so. Senator Flake and Republican Senator McCain and Fox News host. I mean, there's a whole a whole lot of real right wing folks that think I that mean, that was Jesus not the right choice. <laughs> Don't defend Russia ever. Right. I mean, what the fuck? Basic rules. Yeah. But not yeah. our president. He's it's not his jam. But, you know, it wouldn't right. be another week of podcast recording if there wasn't some giant global <laughs> fuck up to talk about. So. That's how that goes. Since we're going to agree on it, it's, you know, not fun. If your girls win any trophies this week, can you bring them to the next recording so that we can just like look at them and feel happy? Just to be clear, my girls are not going to win anything. (laughs) This competition is tough, man. They are judging harder than any competition they've been to this year. Like even the really good, talented, amazing, awesome older girls are not scoring as well as uh, it's it's a tough little bizarre. So, yeah. Yeah, it's well, tough. It's good though. My girl You know what um, else is tough, Tracy? The real fucking world. <laughs> exactly. Right. Everybody doesn't get a fucking platinum. Sometimes you get a, Sometimes you don't even get a high gold. Sometimes you only get a fucking gold. Sometimes you don't like even get a high gold. Harder. I don't even know what that means, but it feels important. Also in the news of the last week, France won the World Cup, so we don't have to watch soccer anymore. So that's good, <laughs> right? That's good. I and was... Pussy Riot got arrested. Did you see that? Pussy Riot rushed the field in Russia in the finals, and they all got dragged away by the Kremlin or the police or whomever because women aren't really allowed to have a voice there. But anyway. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Yeah. Well, they got arrested because really they ran they... the field. I mean, they right, broke the rules. Yeah. They ran the field. Right. They've been arrested before okay. for singing songs against Putin. I mean, they have been arrested for treason I mean, I'm, in the past. Listen, if we want to trash Russia, we can totally trash yeah, Russia. Yeah, yeah. But they were not pulled off the field just because women don't have rights there. They no. were pulled off the field broke, because you're not allowed to run on they the They broke field. the rules. Yeah, All right. they broke the rules. So, Damers, we have an awesome guest today, and I'm super stoked she's on. Her name is Nicola Kraus. She is a novelist, a writer, an all-around awesome woman, a mother, a professional mother, and... I met her early on because she's co-authors with uh, was co-authors with my sister-in-law, uh, who I'm obsessed with, and I got to know her on a personal level, level, and then really sort of binge read all of their ten novels 
and uh, Nikki will introduce herself, but I'm super excited she's here because they wrote this amazing novel based on Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton's sort of epic affair. And with everything going on in Kavanaugh, I thought she could really offer interesting conversation around both a current event and sort of a historic moment in feminism and infidelity and scandal. But Nikki, if you want to introduce introduce yourself to the to the listeners, that would be awesome. I love that you said I was a professional mother. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> Emma and I did, we wrote 10 novels together. The first one was The Nanny Diaries, which has sold 6 million copies and translated into 32 languages and gave us a really interesting perspective on being women in the media. And we got to meet and everyone and anyone you can think of, Katie Couric, Anderson Cooper. And then from there, we continued to write social satire about women in the workplace. And you can't really talk about women in the workplace without eventually circling around to Monica Lewinsky, which is probably the worst woman in the workplace story until The Handmaid's Tale. So uh, we published that one, I think it was five years ago. Um, I, I now judge books by based on how old my daughter was when they came out. And it was a fascinating book to research because we discovered that all our preconceptions about the story were wrong. We had had been watching the story. Emma and I actually became friends the summer that the Lewinsky story broke. So it was very much a backdrop of our sort of coming of age, leaving college, entering the workforce. And the nation was captivated primarily because no one had ever said the word blowjob on the radio or on television before. So watching all these anchors sort of stumble over this and not quite believe it was actually in their copy was kind of amazing. But at the time, we didn't entirely know what to make of it. We were, I think, exactly her age. And so it seemed like the kind of disaster we could have stumbled into. But the vitriol directed at her was so frightening. I think it had a a cooling and a chilling effect on on all of us. You know, what had she done wrong? How had she gotten herself into this mess? How could we avoid making the same mistake? Not that any of us would ever meet the president, but whoever our president was in in, in our world. Um, because flashing your thong, I mean, I, I in my circles, Lisa, are like, well, I, I mean, I would have done that. Like that just didn't seem crazy. Even my mother, who had met. Bill Clinton on many occasions, not that she ever wore a thong. But uh, she's like, you know, he was a very handsome man. I mean, I can understand if you were left alone with him for two seconds, you know, that that does not seem improbable. And then so Nikki, the time between when you and Emma met, and you had written Nanny Diaries, and then you wrote, I think, Citizen Girl was next. There were some books between Nanny and First Affair, quite a bit, quite a few. And were you sort of avoiding the challenge of writing this story? How did you finally say, all right, we got to write Bill and Monica. I think it, it enough time had passed. Also, we gathered information. I think sometimes we find that when stories end up on the back burner for us, it's for a reason. We don't know everything we're supposed to know yet. And in our case, first we saw a documentary called Monica in Black and White, which I highly recommend. HBO brought her into a live studio audience to answer questions. And as those of you who've read the Vanity Fair piece she wrote recently, she's incredibly eloquent and she was very impressive. But the documentary combined her live with uh, archive footage from the trial. It was really interesting to see, for example, the one person who really went to bat for her was Christopher Buckley. Back back to the, the mixed voices of the show wow. here. Yes. Um, 
he was the one person who said, you know, this all seems really improbable. We're focusing on the idea that they just met in the White House, but he was the one to repeatedly go back to the truth that they had actually, the phone records showed, they spoke on the phone over a hundred times over the course of a year and a half. And typically he would keep her on the phone an average of two hours. So you're 19 years old, the leader of the free world, get anyone on the phone in the middle of the night when he's having a crisis and he's picking you. So what was presented as this sort of one-time fling was really a love story on, on some level, whether, you know, she's 19 years old, he obviously has a deeply arrested psyche because he felt matched with a 19 year old, but on some level they saw each other. And so I think that she really felt like she had a responsibility to try to protect him. And she got herself in really hot water as the story progressed because she refused to testify against him. She refused to testify against any of the people who had gotten her into this situation. And because of that, she had to endure this insane media circus. So, Tracy, what do you think about this piece of information about how it was actually sort of a bipartisan response to this scandal? Do you remember at all from, I mean, I think, Trace, you're the same age as these guys. Is there, do you? Yeah. yeah. So so during, during that scandal, actually, I was a huge Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> so I just remember at the time thinking that I couldn't believe what the Republican Party was doing to my president, mm. which is comical now when I think back <laughs> on it. But what's more interesting about that is the fact that she mentioned that sort of Monica was trying to protect him. And I feel like that is something that always happens with women. Like we are always trying to protect men. It's just an interesting dialogue to sort of talk about. Yeah. And actually, the Vanity Fair article was the first time she she sort of copped to it, but she sort of said, like, there was a power dynamic here that people have to pay attention to. And and I think this Vanity Fair article was one of the first in Monica's voice where she said, listen, I have there I have blame in this story, but let's not forget who the players were. What did you think about the the Vanity Fair piece, Nikki? I loved it. And I think she made a really interesting case, especially now in the context of Me Too. And she must feel like everything happened to her 20 years too, too early. early. I know. Um, you know, at, at the time, she was so vilified by both sides. I mean, most of the, the talking heads, the clips that we saw. Um, and also remember, this was the birth of cable news. I mean, it, that was in its infancy. So the idea that you had to fill a 24-hour news cycle with basically no new information was was just happening. So they got, I mean, they got Joan Rivers. I mean, they were just running like, anyone, come talk about this. And everyone piled on her. Yeah. Nobody except for Christopher Buckley <laughs> had a nice thing to say about her. How did you, so you, so you researched, so you did a bunch of, all, all these things yes. sort of and came out before you wrote. the Andrew Solomon book that she partnered with. And I want to say that I might just have said Solomon. It's actually Sullivan. Mm. She spoke to him for days and days and days. And then he wrote it up much as he had done for Diana, Princess of Wales. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting in that story is one, the psychology of it, which of course is inevitable and, and obvious, but her mother sat her down when she was either 11 or 13 at a diner with her brother and said, your father is leaving us for another woman. And in, when you think about that scenario in a pubescent brain, what, what the message she's getting is here's who wins. We're losing your father. The other woman gets everything. She's taking the money. She's taking your father's attention. Also, at that time, he and her mother had gotten to a habit of criticizing her weight gain. Oh, Jesus. So then her first real boyfriend was also married. 
and he was her high school drama teacher. He was in his late 20s or early 30s. She was just newly turned 18 and then 19, so it wasn't illegal, but he did subsequently have relationships with women who were younger than that, girls. So she she leaves that relationship completely traumatized and gets this internship at the White House. The other crazy piece of it is that she's so fucking smart. I mean, to yes, get an internship yeah. at the White House, it's like you have to be the top of some pile, you know, good school or like good no, connections she, or good. She was, she was coming out of a community college because of the divorce, which had wrecked her um, high school transcript. And she had a friend of her mother's, the one who lived at the Watergate, which is why she was at the Watergate during the trial, um, had made some sort of recommendation, but it wasn't at all like like she was able to pull any strings. She really got in there based on the strength of her interview. And she had incredible math skills. Uh, she worked in the department of scheduling in advance. Yeah. And she was able to just keep everything together. She could remember facts, figures, numbers, train times for, for you know, in either yeah. direction, you know, everything that had happened, everything that was going to happen. So she rose very quickly among the interns. And then when the strike happened, and everyone went on furlough, they picked her to be one of the handful of people who stayed because she was so valuable. I mean, just the um, the detail about that she got it based on her charismatic personality in an interview sort of speaks to perhaps why the president was drawn to her. You know, if, if you're matched on that kind of conversational level and you can stay on the phone for two hours. You know, I, I think of it, and Tracy and I think of sort of having a woman's voice and narrative, whether it be in real life or fiction sort of moves the conversation forward. Did you have any feedback in in that capacity, like, great to have this other side out there in the world? It was interesting hearing from women so far ahead of the Me Too movement yeah. who said to us that it reminded them of experiences they'd had when they were younger in the workplace and that they'd never looked at it through that lens of the power imbalance. Going back to what you were saying about the the power component, women, young women especially, feeling inexplicably compelled to protect the men that they worked for. Even yesterday, there was the, um, the a new accuser who came forth against Russell Simmons, oh. who came from a very powerful yeah. family. And she said, I was going to have to keep seeing him. What was I supposed to do? Yeah. And I think that yeah. was the question that so, you know, now we know hundreds of thousands of women have asked, what was I supposed to do? And if, if Monica hadn't been betrayed by Linda Tripp, this never would have come to light because she would have just felt that it was her obligation to keep the secret, to earn his trust. And I think that that pathology of victims needing to earn the predator's trust by keeping the secret to keep themselves safe is something that we see over and over and I think we're much more aware of now. Yeah, thank God for that. So then there was that and I, I, Tracy, I'm not sure if we've talked about it on the podcast before. I, we must have. The interview on the Today Show, show that the that President Clinton did with James Patterson when they asked, <laughs> oh, Jesus God. Christ, that was insane. I, yes. Like, what did I, you... Had no one prepped you? Right. My, that was my first response was, where the fuck is his team? And Tracy was like, that's your response. <laughs> but like... That is a fair right. response. But what, Nikki, what did you think when you... I mean, were you like, of course. I mean, being I, so I just, intimately involved in this story, were you like, obviously, that's what that fuckhead's going to say. I just shook my head. I mean, the first thought is, oh, the Clintons. Like, why can't you just ever play by the rules, have the right sound bites, say the right thing? Why, why, why? Yeah. Um, 
find them very painful because I, you know, I think they have the capacity to do so much good for so many people and they're their own worst enemies. Yes, I was not at all surprised. (laughs) I mean, I think there's a tremendous narcissism there because when it, 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 it requires a damaged psyche for an adult to want to be in, in an intimate, sexual or non-sexual, but very intimate relationship with a child, especially when you look at that extreme power imbalance. But so that requires do. <laughs> He's not really seeing out. He's seeing some strange reflection back of himself. I mean, one of the things they really bonded over was being overweight, having been teased about being overweight. They would call and talk to each other about what they could eat, what they couldn't eat. Had they been good that day? Had they been bad that day? And I think being able to match insecurities and vulnerabilities in that way. So ultimately, I think Monica's only an extension of some broken part of his own psyche, and he'll still never really be able to understand or see the damage that he did. Yeah. Oh, God, it's so depressing. I mean, it's so important. It's so telling of the kind of – my guess is he's not the only president of this country that – well, certainly the current president that suffers from some sort of narcissism complex. Jack Kennedy. Uh, Yeah, I just feel like there is something about the job that Mm -hmm. requires – people to not be quite balanced. And I, mean, I think it does require it. I mean, you have to be able to be like, oh, yeah, I should be the leader of the free world. <laughs> it requires hubris. It does. Yeah. So I just want to throw one thing in here, because if I don't throw it in here and like totally fuck up everything that everybody <laughs> said, like it wouldn't be fun and nobody would want to listen to this podcast. But as much as like I love jumping on and trashing Bill Clinton because he's like my favorite person to trash, I do think that we need to make a stronger effort to better educate women when they're younger so that they don't make decisions like that. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's her fault at all. She was 19. She was a kid. But we need to start teaching women younger. And so that they can better educate and be better equipped to handle situations like that. Well, Tracy, yeah, you just set up the perfect bridge to Nikki's going to stick around and talk to us about one article this week and and teaching kids younger. I mean, so there was an article in The New York Times about money, about men and women and what do they earn and how does that work in their world? It was entitled When She Earns more as role shift old ideas on who pays the bills persist. But one avenue for teaching girls when they're younger is for a different dynamic at home. As as Nikki pointed out, in the case of Monica Lewinsky, there was clearly a gender situation at home, both before her dad left and then how the narrative of divorce played out in that family. But this article was about cultural shifts in gender dynamics in a marriage, but also just sort of internal um, muscle memory, expected institutional gender roles in terms of money. And I got to say, in my marriage, my husband and I both work. Um, I'm probably more financially ambitious than he is. Sometimes I, I earn more, sometimes I don't. But we definitely defy gender norms as a marriage. And there were parts of this article that I really identified with, with which is if you're not having incredible amounts of communication about what what is each doing and how is each contributing and how is each helping move the family forward, then you know, that's such an integral element of a non-traditional gendered marriage, I think. I don't know. No, Nikki, you said you read it over the weekend before before we talked about you talking about it on this show, and it, it created some moments of sort of thought evokement. What, what did you think? It, it made me think about several things. Um, first, when I got married, I had been a number one New York Times bestselling author whose book had been turned into a movie. 
my husband was just a normal person with a normal <laughs> job. Um, so when it came time to do things like put a down payment on our apartment, you know, I was making all the financial decisions and it was all my money. Mm-hmm. And that created a real imbalance in our relationship over the first few years that, of course, and I would say over and over, if it was you and I was the one coming in with credit card debt and you'd have, I would consider that I'd won the lottery. <laughs> but because it's flipped, it's awkward and painful. And this was actually a huge problem when I was dating. I once had a guy say directly to my face, no one's going to want to marry you because you own your own apartment. You're too oh, successful. That's for the dumb. I can't, I can't even use the term I want to use because Kelly would get mad at me, but that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, so, but it's, but it is real at the same time. It's dumb. And yet also it is, you know, it is the duck we are hunting. So, but the mind I, play on that is, what what so i'm i'm about like 5 or 6 years younger than you guys and mm-hmm. and what i was sort of told and in the dating scene so in my in my early 20s in washington dc me being ambitious and smart and success you know quote unquote successful as successful as you can be when you're not a new york new york times best selling author at 20 whatever is was like a really hot thing about me like it was you know, like there's nothing sexier than ambitious woman. But it, it was only like in theory when you when like rubber met the road and pen met the paper and there was money involved and stuff, perhaps it turned a corner. But you were almost you almost had to be everything and nothing simultaneously. Yes. Which, you know, and, and that's well, just being dating. female is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, being female is awesome. Come on. You know, it's but, amazing. But then I then I tell this story that I met Caleb, who I, I grew up in a very traditional gendered f- family. My mom stayed home. My dad worked, made a bunch of money. He he like we couldn't talk to him for an hour after he got home from work because he needed to transition from work dad to home dad. Like, it, you know, he was too mm-hmm. he was too rough around the edges and he, he worked in a factory. And so then I met my husband, Caleb, who Nikki knows he sends his love. And he's so different. I mean, I never met anybody quite like him before. And I almost I, I almost proposed to him on, in like the first week to be like, can I just, <laughs> I just can I keep you? I, I don't know anyone like you who's just like, yeah, let's see how that goes. And let's, you know, let's just be two humans that make a family. But I think that that, you know, I had to work harder at that reality than he did for sure. I think everybody has to figure out what it is that they want. So so I come from a, probably a very traditional family where my dad worked and my mom stayed home and worked out of the home and, and raised my sister and I. Um, and I think I probably prefer a more traditional marriage, but it's and I saying saying traditional, I don't even know what traditional is anymore. But when you look at, you know, sort of, I, I don't even want to say man is the head of household because my husband really isn't the head of the household every year. Some years he is, some years he's not from a financial perspective. But I think you just have to figure out what it is that makes you happy. And if you like for your husband to do all the manly things around the house and you do all the traditional female roles, well, that's okay. And if you want to do more less of the traditional female roles like laundry and, and housekeeping and washing the dishes or whatever, and you prefer your husband to do that, that's okay. It's also perfectly okay for you to share everything. And everything to sort of be equal and you just do what needs to get done to make the house work. What's really interesting, my client, Sally Thornton, she started a headhunting firm called Forche in Silicon Valley. And she is part of a, the gender division at Berkeley, which I can't remember what the name of it is at this moment, but it will come to me. So she's been looking at all the data. Men are having a really hard time. And that was the other thing that the article made me think about because there are a lot of men in the neighborhood or what now call the lead parent 
what used to be called stay-at-home dads. And they're embarrassed because nobody makes an effort to say, hey, that's really cool. Everyone sort of looks at them like, when are you going back to work? Did you get fired? Are you a loser? Were you a drummer? Like, what's your story? (laughs) And she's found that when men have tried to initiate for more paid leave, more paternity leave at leading places in Silicon Valley that I can't name, because um, that they will grudgingly get it. And then they'll get punished when they come back. They'll be demoted um, in ways that they're not allowed to do to their female employees, but they're still getting away with doing to their male employees. So a lot of places have paternity leave, but it's just lip service. So her initiative is to whenever a woman who is with their children sees a man who is in the playground or, you know, in the park or doing the school run, just to be like, hey, that's so great. Good for you. She's like, anywhere you can just boost their self-esteem and reward them for making this choice, that's the only way in 20 years we're going to start to see some sort of parity. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have this imbalance and the pressure for women to perform at work and perform at home will never shift. Yeah. So I struggle a little bit with that because I don't think we should fucking be praising men for being at the damn park. Like, (laughs) If they're doing it full time. Regardless, like, I mean, that's just your role. Fucking do it. Like, right? Like, I don't, I know. I know I sound like Kelly. No, but I, I mean, just, yeah, I think that there's this other layered bit about all this. Like, women seeing women with their kids, there's this easy common denominator to create community. Hey, mm-hmm. you're with your kid. Yeah, you're yeah. at the park. Look, you, you're wearing a, you know, this kind of diaper bag, or um, you have that kind of stroller, or something about your shoes. But going up and talking to a man who's not your husband has, like, a whole different weightiness to it, I think. And so building community based not upon gender or gender norms, but upon your role, your profession as a – we call them house spouses in my neighborhood to try to avoid gender – you know, gendered words – creates an additional obstacle that is – that has to be worked after, I think – um, and understood by all the participating sort of players in that scenario. Um, I don't but know you if call we're good house enough. Spouses house spouses. You can't say you can't say stay at home dad or stay at home mom. Yeah, I mean, I think that in 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 going back to what Nikki just said, it's like if you remove gender from the from the from the role, then there's it's just an easier there's it's a it's a lower barrier to entry. So, like, instead of a stay-at-home mom or dad, you're a house spouse. And instead of, like, maternity or paternity leave, it's family leave. And, you know, you just sort of create – you don't put a person – you know, an identity to those um, roles. important roles. Yeah, or important then, things. I, mean, I feel like I need to say something about that. I know. It seems, I know. I know. Because you hate I, that. I, because I don't – I don't uh, – I, I agree with caveats. <laughs> I can't say I don't disagree anymore. I agree with caveats on a lot of the things that both of you are saying. And I think that to move forward, we have to do some of those things. But then what do, if we can't say stay at home mom or stay at home dad, then what what do children refer to their parents as? Well, I mean, in your family, there's still mom and dad, I, I would think. But, you know, I, I agree that if we don't cr- change, if, if it doesn't, it's a culture change. You know, we talk a lot about a yeah. culture change inside of our professional institutions and, you know, being thoughtful about building uh, networks for women and, um, you know, b- bringing women up and all these sorts of things. The same, this, the same changes need to be made on the home front if we want, if we want more opportunities, we want more options, you know? Yeah, and somehow stay-at-home mom, it just sounds like 
it just sounds demeaning, you know? Like I know I don't know any woman who says I'm a stay-at-home mom with her shoulders back and her head up. I think rather saying I'm lead parent, it sounds more dynamic. And right, kids but why? Be but like my dad's lead negative. parent. My mom's a lawyer. But it, it totally should. shouldn't be be negative to say I'm a stay-at-home mom. Stay-at-home moms have a harder job than anybody else. Oh, totally. Like, but that I get should me be the mom awesome. does that with pride. Like they always when they stumble over it when they're like, "Oh, do you do anything?" Like there's always this sort of cringe. Where so if we could give them language that eliminates the cringe, why not? Yeah, it's 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 not it's not as much about. Um, the self-prompted statement, I'm a stay-at-home mom. It's like when they're at a cocktail party, it's like, well, what do you yeah. do? You know, it's yeah. it's more in, in a circumstance when something catches you off your guard. Okay, so just to wrap up Nikki's time, we've been asking our guests what they think one of the more significant challenges facing women in 2018 are. Do you have a take on that, Nikki? That was so- it's that- huge. I get it. I know. Yeah. I'm like, do I think? personal safety? Like, do I look at Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy of needs? Like, do I start with the most basic? Um, yeah. I, I was, yeah, did you guys talk about the uh, SNL sketch, Welcome to Hell? No. Oh, my God. If you haven't watched it, give yourself a three minutes of pure joy. <laughs> um, it uh, it was done the week of the, uh, the House of Cards was pulled mm. um, when everything was sort of just completely falling apart. And uh, it's just it, it's it's basically the primary thing is personal safety. I the biggest challenge that we're facing, I think actually it's connection with other women. I think that if we can find more common ground, because there are certain things that I think we all want for each other and for our daughters, then we will be able to affect more change. The other challenge that I'm seeing is that on my social media feed. I have hundreds of people who are readers. So they're across all demographics. They live all across the country. They're people that I've never met. And so it's always interesting to me as sort of a neutral sampling of what's happening out there. And since the Me Too movement started, I've seen dozens and dozens of posts about things to do for our daughters, how to educate our daughters, back to your earlier point, you know, what can we empower them with, the information that they're going to need going out into the world. I have yet to see a single post about what anyone's going to do for their sons, what they're going to say to their sons, how they're going to educate their sons, what their sons need to know before they go off to college, like nothing. Yeah. I think that might be the biggest problem facing women today. <laughs> I mean, being the of the three of us, being the only one with sons, I think um, I agree that it's a big thing. And I think just me being who I am and my husband being who he, he is, we're really checking ourselves in turn inside of our family unit. But I think putting it out there in the Me Too moment is a little bit the problem of this is a woman's time. Why are we talking about? men again. And I don't think it's the appropriate immediate response, but I definitely think it's there. And so something about um, about taking what's so important in women finding their voice and this space to come out and in this be starting to create the space for an equal playing field and that we need we need our male allies to be part mm-hmm. of that conversation, to be part of that advancement, to be part of that progress. And Tracy and I talk a lot about that on this podcast because, you know, I really believe that women can lift each other up, but we're still in a place that you don't get to the top until a man, you know, grabs your hand at the same time. So I do think that um, hopefully as women find their voice and mothers find their voice and daughters and girlfriends and all that sort of stuff that um, that men, boys, you know, adolescent men and, and young young men and boys get to 
get to be part of that conversation. But I have thought so much about that as well, Nikki. I, I do think it's really important to stay, you know, for everyone to keep them in inside of this, um, inside of this movement in in a place that they fit, you know, and <laughs> not trying yeah. to shove them in a place that they don't fit. Yeah, just to be like, this is, you know, this is what consent looks like. Like, yes. just those conversations, you yes. know, this is how we treat women in the workplace. Like, this is how we let girls onto your baseball team. Like, this is, you know, thousands yeah. of girls aren't being raped every year at college by chipmunks. Like, yeah. there's a group of people yeah. that need to be included in this conversation. Yes. And it just it would be interesting if I was seeing it, maybe if, I, if like a third, you know, like one for every three of the other posts, but not a one, not a single one. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, hopefully as this thing, you know, keeps going and um, as we elect, you know, hopefully elect double digits, female representatives on the federal level, and they infiltrate the man's space here in the man's arena. I mean, it all gets to be a bigger conversation. That's what I hope for Me Yay. Too and the pink wave and, you know, women finding voice. So thank you for joining us, Nikki. It was great oh. to have you on. Super interesting. Yeah, you offered it was such awesome. interesting information. We really appreciate it. You are so welcome. This was super fun. Um, and I can't wait to listen to more of your podcast. This is awesome. Tracy's got to get back to the dance moms. She needs another cocktail. What? And Probably a lot more. <laughs> anyway. Just as a heads up, Damers, we are taking a break next week. Tracy and I, our schedules just can't match up. It's cycle. It's busy. But we will be back with a bang, we promise. So stick with us. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. We had a good time. We had lots of fun. Listen and subscribe to Dame It All to Hell on Apple Podcast Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Yeah.